All right, so as we dig in, excuse me, as we dig into this final chapter, which looks a lot like chapter one. A lot of the same themes, a lot of the same motives, some context is different, but it's still consider your ways. Consider what you're doing, what your issues are, what your problems are that may be keeping you detached from God. And so as we dig into chapter two, I want to just quickly recap chapter one. So Haggai is speaking to the people who are building the temple in Jerusalem, and he's berating them because of their poor and their apathetic work. And Persia has conquered Babylon, and King Cyrus has allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem, where they were to specifically be rebuilding the temple and the defenses around the city. And these half-blooded Samaritans wanted to assist in rebuilding the temple. They were denied by the leaders, Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And if you remember, they were half-blooded Jews because they had intermarried with pagan women. And if, according to rabbinic law, if you don't have a Jewish mother, you are not a Jew. And so when the intermarriage happened, these children were born to non-Jewish moms and they were not considered to be Jews. Thus, their help to help rebuild the temple was refused. And so they went to the Persian court and they said, hey, these Jews are trying to build this temple. It's going to be a fortress. They're going to use it to try to fight the Persians and to hold you off. And so this investigation starts by the Persian Empire. They're investigating what's really going on. And it takes 16 years for this investigation to complete. And once it completes... Uh, King Darius, who has never replaced King Cyrus, reaffirms King Cyrus's position that, yes, it's okay for you to be rebuilding the temple. But this window of time should have never passed without the temple having been completed. The Persians didn't really care about whether or not the temple was going up. But the people took the opportunity to use the Persian investigation as a reason to skip the work on the temple and instead work on their own homes and their own properties. And when it When they finished building just the structures they needed, they added on additional spaces and they put in decorative paneling. They were really going to work on their own things. And they would use excuses like, we're waiting on God's timing. We're waiting on the Lord. And they would say things like, oh, but we've we've got to tend to our flocks and to our herds and to our crops because the harvests are poor and, and life is hard. It's really just a struggle to make ends meet. And while that was true, because God was working against them due to their turning away from him, the real issue was that their priorities were all wrong. They were building their own kingdoms instead of building the kingdom of God. And so God says, consider your ways. Step back, assess, and evaluate your life. Evaluate the motives, evaluate the benefits and the consequences of your actions. Because the people had turned away from God, God was working against them withholding blessing and delivering a curse in its place. And so, while they were preoccupied with their own desires, they should have been preoccupied with the work of the kingdom of God. But finally, when the message from God came through Haggai and it reached the people, the people responded immediately. And they went to work in the temple. And God moves from working against them to working for them. And he transforms the curse into blessing. And they moved on in obedience to God's will. And so we concluded last week with the following application. One, consider your ways. Step back and assess and evaluate. Two, confess your failings. Don't hide from God, but come into the light. 
Confess to God where you failed and accept his forgiveness. And three, accept that you need God and commit to obeying him. And so with that, it brings us to chapter two. And chapter two, as I said, is very much the same to chapter one. The, the, The intent is the same. The correction is the same, but the context varies slightly. So, the benefit for you today is that we get a, short, a slightly shorter sermon. Stop cheering. That's rude. <laughs> I'm a person too. All right, let's dig into chapter verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you. And when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So among those who had returned from Babylon were a handful who had actually lived in Jerusalem before their exile to Babylon and before the the original temple had been destroyed. And they had seen the glory of Solomon's temple. And in comparison, what they were looking at looked like a shack. And they were just in awe, and they were amazed at just how terrible this building looked as it was going up in comparison to what they had seen before. So imagine this. Imagine that uh, we're meeting here today, and when we leave this evening, some wiring catches fire and the whole building burns down. And so we don't have a place to meet next week or the weeks going forward. So we have to find someplace else and it ends up being a smaller location that only seats about 50. And we'd be talking about the glory days of when we had church at Shalom at, at Logos. That's kind of what's happening here, right? They remember how wonderful the original temple was and they're looking at what's going up and they're going, man, I sure, sure miss the old temple. That was a really great place. It's kind of what we're seeing here. So Solomon's temple was absolutely incredible. And what they were building was a shack in comparison, and there were those who stood by, and and some of them probably just wept in sadness at what they were seeing. But God comes with a rousing message of encouragement. He says, don't worry about how it looks. Just as my presence was with the nation when you came out of Egypt, I am with you in this endeavor. Don't live by what you see. Live by faith and do what is right. Build my house. Then God makes this incredible promise in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So while the the man-made beauty of this second temple was nothing compared to the first, God is promising that he will fill it with beauty and treasure that far surpasses that of Solomon's temple. Indeed, even though the precious Ark of the Covenant was no longer around, and also the the Shekinah, Shekinah glory, or the dwelling glory, 
of God would not inhabit that second temple, but one day an even greater glory would arrive and enter it. What God is saying in these verses is a word of encouragement to the builders to not worry about the appearance of the temple. Their faithfulness will result in building in a building that God will use as a focal point for the entire world. You see, it's in this temple that Jesus will appear. It's here that his parents dedicated him while he was still an infant. And at that dedication, both Anna and Simeon gave prophetic announcements about his ministry to the world. It was here that as a 12-year-old child, he would confound the best scribes and priests with his grasp of spiritual things. It was here that he would reveal the holy anger of God in clearing the temple of crass religious merchandising. It was here that he would heal the sick and cast out demons. It was here that as a man he would enter into a debate with religious leaders and confront them with their errors. It was here that on the day of the crucifixion the veil in the temple would be torn from top to bottom. And it was here that the Holy Spirit would do such powerful work through the disciples who would gather with large crowds and talk about Jesus. The second, the second temple was greater than Solomon's first temple, simply in that it was the second temple that Jesus came to. And Haggai's words are a kind of time compression. While the Messiah will come to this temple they are building, one day another temple will be built from which the Messiah will rule over all the earth. And in that day, the very order of the heavens and the earth will be shaken and things will be dramatically turned around. No longer will gold and silver be a medium of value, what people consider to be precious. On that day, it will be the will and the work of God that is precious. And that is why the temple will be the desire of all nations, as it says in the King James Version, because it will be the throne of Christ. And what I love about these verses is what they say about facilities. It's not how big or how well-equipped things are that matters. The beauty of architecture and the functionality of form are not the issue. The question is, is God there? Is he blessing? Is the Lord at work? And let's be honest about this. God doesn't need a building to work, does he? Does God need a building? I'm pretty sure they were worshiping before buildings existed, to some degree or another. So let's not get hung up on buildings. We could be doing this in an overgrown field or an empty parking lot. The results would be the same. Let's always seek to simply see them as vehicles that God uses to teach us more about faith and about loving and serving Him and about believing in Him. I'm very thankful for this place. Even for the short time this summer, we were, we were moved into the other side of the building as they were renovating this room. Even in that situation, I was remembering this space and wishing we were still here. So I'm very thankful for this room. But I'm far more thankful for what I see God doing in the lives of the people that are in this room. That's the most important part. That's the thing that we should be seeing. That's where we should be working. And I'm blown away at how God has been providing through you for the things that Shalom needs to make our time with the Lord the best that it can be. And every time that we make a decision to spend some money on something that we feel that we need, and I realize that the zeros in the bank account are, are going to get to smaller digits. Somebody gives again, and the number changes. And every time it happens, my faith grows because I see that God has got it. Just a, a personal story. I remember when I was first raising 
money to move to Uganda. And we had a plan of when we were going to go, um, and I was really struggling at a point where, like, we, we were a certain percentage away. I forget how far it was. Maybe it was, it was you know, six or $7,000 and that we needed to finally hit our target to be able to go. And I just run through the list of everybody I knew and everybody that our friends knew. And I didn't know where the money was going to come from, and time was getting short. And I remember praying, God, if you're going to do something, I need you to do it now because we're out of time. And I called my friend, and I was just going to tell my friend, hey, you know, here's, here's where we're at. Here's an update on where things are. And when I did, he, he answered, he said, hey, I was just talking about you with my wife. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, okay, what about? He said, well, you know, we only do our, our tithe to our church once a year. We, we kind of save it, and we, we do one total amount. And we decided that this year we're just going to give our whole tithe to you. I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. I said, I said, just so I can, you know, be prepared and, you know, kind of know what, where that puts me, do you have a rough idea of, of what that looks like? And he said, yeah, it's about $7,000. Gone. Just like that. God's got it. Right? If you're in his will and you're doing what he wants, he's got it. Now, it doesn't mean he's always going to give it to you, right? Because maybe you, he doesn't think you need it. Maybe there's something else he thinks you need. But when it comes to this place, God has reassured me time and time again that no matter what the bank account looks like, he's got it. And he's using you to accomplish it, so just know that you're being used by God. At least that's what I see from my side. So let's never lose sight of this important thing, that it's not about equipment. It's not about the building either. It's about the building of faith. And so as we continue to worship together and as we lead together and as we do life together, let building our faith also be something that we do together. Let's move on to verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a, uh, by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of your hands and what they offer there is unclean. So two months have, have gone by and Haggai has received another word from God. And this time, it's not about the temple directly. It's about the casual and insincere attitudes the people have toward God. Haggai begins by asking some questions. Number one, if a holy thing touches unholy things, does it become holy? And the answer is no. And number two, if an unclean thing touches clean things, will it become defiled and corrupt? And the answer is yes. And so what God is saying is that the people who came to worship at the altar of burnt offering thought that simply by making their offering to God, they went away approved and clean and holy. But God said that their casual and their flippant attitude towards him, as expressed by their inattention to the temple, was actually having the opposite effect. It was making the altar unclean. Now, don't get confused on the timing. It sounds like, well, hold on, you just ended chapter 1 and they were building the temple, and now we're here and now God's singing another message that they're not building the temple. No, they are. 
What he's doing is he's reminding them about what it was like before, what was happening before. He's giving them a second, it's actually a third message, and it's meant to be an encouragement to keep doing what you're doing. So don't get confused in the timelines. It's very easy to do with the way that this is ordered. So I want you to picture this in your mind. If, just humor me. Everybody close your eyes. I'm going to create a picture for you, okay? If, you, if you're staring at me with your eyes open, it's going to be awkward right now. So there we go. Okay. There's a level hilltop that is covered with piles of broken, cracked building stones. Imagine the pile. And in one area is an immense altar that's been constructed, and smoke is rising from it as priests take hunks of meat and cast them onto it. And there's a line of a dozen or so people standing several yards away, each leading a goat or a sheep. And when a person gets to the front of the line, they hand their animal to a priest who takes it over to a table and prepares it to offer it as a burnt offering. And that person then steps to the side and waits, watching as the priest begins to work. And he watches until he takes the meat over to the altar, and he ascends a small set of stairs, and then throws the meat onto the grate that covers the coals. And the meat hisses, and it sizzles, and immediately the smoke begins to rise. And as the person looks at the altar, in the immediate background is one of those piles of broken stone, a mute witness of a non-existent temple. You can open your eyes. The foundation had been built, the altar had been built, but the building was incomplete. And so, as they worked on their homes and on their houses, they were still coming and giving offerings to get their sins forgiven. But the temple wasn't done. And so they thought, well, by going through the action, well, then I'm, I'm good, I'm clean, everything's good. And what God is saying is, no, you're not, because you weren't doing what I told you to do. Each pile and each stone spoke eloquently of the hypocrisy of the people. And any sincere heart who made an offering there would have wept over the lack of a temple. Genuine faithfulness de demanded the temple be rebuilt. This was clearly obvious, and the lack of work failed to demonstrate the sincerity of the motives of those who came to worship God. And we repeat this very same error when we come to church and we lift up our hands or our voices to the Lord in worship, and then we go home to a marriage that's a pile of brokenness, and we do nothing to clear it out or to make it right. We do the same when we read a chapter of the Bible, but then we don't do what it says. We do the very same when we pray, and the Spirit prompts us to take some action, and we ignore God. And may I say that we do the same when we call Jesus Lord, but His Lordship doesn't extend to our wallets. You see, the rebuilding of the temple for most people wouldn't mean actual time and labor. It would mean giving financially so that the right people could be hired to do the difficult, laborious, and artistic work. Materials also had to be purchased. If we were going to have a, a personal motto with relation to how we want to approach life biblically, one might be learning and living God's word. But it's not enough to learn it. We must also live it. When we get to heaven, God's not going to ask us or give us a quiz over how much we know. Instead, we're going to be judged on the basis of how faithfully we lived in light of what we know. 
And so just as Haggai says here, going to church twice a month and throwing a $5 bill into the offering box does not buy you a pass to the I'm a good person club. That's not how it works. Rather, unless our priorities are right and we begin with God as first and foremost in our life and our heart, then going to church avails us nothing at all. You can't earn points with God by doing religious things. You do the right thing. You do the only thing. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will fall into the right place. Haggai goes on to say in verse 15, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone of the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward. For the 20, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. So God asked the question, before you started building the temple, how were things going for you? You see, they had known want and endless lack. Because now, they knew that before because they weren't, they didn't have God in the right place. But now, because they are rebuilding the temple, God has stated that he's going to bless them. He says, from this very day that you lay the first stones, I will bless you. How encouraging it must have been to have God working for you now instead of working against you. Like a wind at their backs propelling them forward. And this is a very basic lesson of Scripture. If you obey God, then He will bless you. Now some of you sat up in your chairs at that statement. I won't point out who they were, but... Maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds like a prosperity gospel. If I obey God, he's going to bless me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about prosperity. So I'm going to say it again to make sure we're all on the same page, okay? If you obey God, then he will bless you. I'm not saying that you're going to be healthy or that you're going to be wealthy or that people are going to love you and that your life's going to exist without struggle. If you obey God. I'm not saying that. That's, that's a recipe for complete and total failure. Jesus was very clear in John 15, 18 through 20, when he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. There's, there's a sense in the words that Jesus is saying here that we should be rejoicing in being treated the same as he was. That's a good thing, though it's not an enjoyable thing to experience. 1 Peter 4.12 warns us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The prosperity gospel says, hey, you should be surprised if any type of bad thing happens to you. 
Because you should be experiencing unending joy and happiness. Why? Because God is your heavenly Father, and He wants you to experience the best. So if you're in God's grace, if you are obeying God, then He should be blessing you mightily. And if you don't have a blessing, you must be doing something wrong. But Paul says the exact opposite to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.8. When he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. The contrast that Paul draws here of the people preaching a prosperity gospel who had become like kings while the apostles were like the scum of the earth just waiting to die in the arena. No, I'm, I'm not telling you a prosperity gospel. Now that I've said all that, let me make the statement one more time and explain what I am actually saying. If you obey God, then he will bless you. The form of the blessings that we get today will most likely be different than the ones that we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God often blesses the Israelites materially. He gave them good harvests. He took care of their physical and their financial needs. He prospered them materially. And these tangible results would demonstrate to all of the neighboring nations that God was divinely blessing them and bringing his favor upon them. Does God still bless this way? Sure, sometimes he does. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from heaven. Everything we have, all of our money, all of our possessions, our car and our house, everything we own is from God. And they are God's blessings to us. And yet... God does not promise that if you obey him, that he's going to make you rich. He doesn't promise that he'll make you wealthy or that he'll make you happy. Many believers live in a life of poverty. Many believers live in a life of persecution. Many believers live in a life with poor health. God does promise to bless you when you obey him. He does promise to bless you when you're struggling through poverty and persecution or poor health. But he doesn't promise that the blessing will be restoring you out of that situation. He doesn't promise that the blessing will be healing you. He doesn't promise that the blessing will be making you prosperous in the world's eyes. And so thus a lack of material blessing is not synonymous with a lack of being in God's will or in God's favor. So how does God bless us today? God gives us peace and joy in our hearts. He gives us forgiveness of sins. He seals us with the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. He gives us eternal life, and he gives us his word. In short, he gives us meaning and purpose and forgiveness. See, God blesses in a multitude of ways, but many of those ways are spiritual blessings and not material ones. And so the message that God is giving to his people in verse 19 is this, I am going to bless you from now on. Because now... You are in my will. Now you're doing what I want you to do. And if you are feeling God pushing against you, if you feel God's blessings are absent in your life, well, consider your ways. Confess your failings and obey whatever God is asking you to do. As I said before, last week, if you're not receiving God's blessing, it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. There may be something else going on. Job certainly wasn't doing anything wrong. But, at the very least, take the opportunity to consider your ways and see if there's something that's not quite right there. 
Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This fourth and final prophecy was delivered at, on the same day as the third one that we've already covered, but the direction and the intention of it is far different. This was specifically for the governor, Zerubbabel. It's hard to say that word three times fast, Zerubbabel. The key for understanding this passage is finding out and investigating who Zerubbabel was. The reason he was selected to rule as governor and why the Jews followed him was because he was the descendant in the kingly line of David. And as the governor, his concern would be to protect the Jews in Jerusalem and its suburbs from their enemies. For several generations now, the nations of Israel had been swept about by other nations like Flotsam and Jetsam. And for those of you who aren't familiar with those words... Flotsam is floating debris that a ship accidentally loses overboard. And jetsam is floating debris that a ship intentionally throws overboard. And so if you can picture this debris floating in the ocean, this debris represents Israel as they are swept and carried away by wave after wave of captivity and destruction. It started in Egypt in 1523 B.C. Then came the Babylonians and then came the Persians, followed by the Greeks, and finally Rome. But God here affirms his control over the protection of his people. The day is coming when God will judge the nations and establish his people. God says that on that day, God will take Zerubbabel as the rightful heir to the throne of David and make him like a ring of authority. The signet ring was the special ring an official would use to press into a seal and would show ownership and authority. It was a mark and a sign of identity. Zerubbabel as a descendant of David, is a picture of the Messiah. Just as God worked to raise up Zerubbabel to the office of governor and leader for the Jews and then encourage him to take charge, so the day will come when God will bring Christ as the king of the Jews and the ruler of all nations. And in the same way that Zerubbabel as governor foreshadowed the rule of Christ, you and I as Christians foreshadow his earthly rule by demonstrating his spiritual rule over our lives today. When the world looks at the church, what they ought to see is a glimpse of what the world will look like when Jesus has come to rule. You see, God's promises never fail. People can be conquered by foreign nations. People can be exiled. People can even be under God's curse for a period of time. But God's promises always prove faithful because He is faithful. And God had a plan for Zerubbabel and God has a plan for each and every one of you. And he has a plan for me. Now that plan may look bleak at times. But God has a plan for your welfare to give you a hope and a future. And our very lives are secure in him. Our hope is secure in him. And our salvation is secure in him. And so... We can see from this book of Haggai, as we've gone through the two chapters, that God is patient and he's long-suffering. 
For 16 years, the people were selfish and following their own pursuits, and he still forgave them, and he still accepted them. Similarly, God will never abandon you. Maybe you've spent 16 years apart from God. Maybe it's been more than 16 years. He is always there. He is waiting for you with loving and welcoming arms to forgive you and to restore you to himself. Those that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile had received a second chance. And when they returned, they didn't make the most of their second chance. They turned away and they started pursuing their own material gain for 16 years. But when they returned to God, he was waiting for them with loving and welcoming arms. And while the people proved faithless, God proved faithful. And thus, God gives them a third opportunity and a third chance to get right with him. And we should thank God for his forgiveness and for his grace. God is patient with us. No matter how long you've been going your own way, remember this, it is never too late to come back to God. And so we must consider our ways. If God is our number one priority, or if he's not. If not, consider your ways. Step back, assess and evaluate your life. Confess your failings to our God who brings light in the darkness and accept that you need God and commit to obeying him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I'm going to pray. The book of Haggai is all about getting your priorities in the right place. There's many smaller themes that run within this. But it's get your priorities in the right place, and your priority should 100% always be God. Period. And if your priorities are not in the right place, if God is not number one in your life, if his will does not reign supreme for you, then you need to consider your ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the study of Haggai. We thank you, Lord, for the things that you've spoken and the words that you've given. And we thank you, Lord, for the reminders of who you are and of your character. And Lord, we are reminded of our own prosperity, our own propensity, excuse me, propensity, not prosperity, our propensity to fall into discouragement when things aren't going the way that we think they should. When life gets hard and our struggle becomes a stressful and a straining burden and we feel like giving in, God, you're there. Help us to remember that it is always time to walk in obedience to you. Help us to remember that we have each been called to something you want us to do. And the time to carry it out is now. The time to do your will is now. And the time will come when all the earth will shout your praise and our hearts will cry and our voices will sing, Great are you, Lord. And Father, we look to that day with great anticipation. And all God's people said, Amen.